0: Shalom, and welcome back to our Megillat Echa series. I'm Yael Ziegler. Today's class, we'll be dealing with the second parak of Megillat Echa, um, and I'll be trying to outline the general structure and uh, the general themes and, of course, also the theological approach of this parak. Um, like we said about parak Aleph, parak Bet of Megillat Echa seems to be neatly divided into two. And similar to what we said in parak Aleph, it appears at first glance that the first half of the parak, from pasuk Aleph until pasuk Yud, is a third-person, uh, impersonal, almost objective description of the destruction, whereas from pasuk yud Alef, if through Kaf Bet*, we seem to have, or at least initially, uh, a first-person subjective description of the destruction, where Yerushalayim speaks about herself, and of course, this is the collective voice of Am Yisrael to some degree. Um, now, of course, as I said, that's only at first glance. It's not true that the second half of the parak is entirely from the perspective of Yerushalayim, but we'll be talking about this as we progress through the parak. That it seems to be that this is supposed to be the structure of the parak, and indeed, in Pasukud Aleph, we immediately transition into from the third person objective description into Yerushalayim's own personal description of herself in the first person, and we'll explain as we go along. Why and when that changes. In the meantime, I'd like to speak about the first half of this parak. Um, the first 10 sukim of this parak is a description of the destruction. What we did not have in Parak Aleph, we mentioned that Parak Aleph was a very quiet chapter. It was a very haunting chapter. There was a sense of the absence of sound, the absence of destruction. And what we had was what I call the loud crash of silence that immediately followed the sounds of the destruction. This was the first sound that we heard when we opened Migilat Echa. In Parak Bet, we almost moved backwards or we we offer some sort of retrospective glance on the destruction itself. And in fact, this is what is described here, The very first, first pasuk, how has God clouded over in his anger the daughter of Zion. He has thrown from the heaven to the earth the glory of Israel. From great heights, he throws down, crashing to the ground, the glory of Israel. And he did not remember his footstool. Rashi says that's the Beit Hamikdash. On the day of his anger, the entire description here uh, seems to uh, seems to describe the destruction of Yerushalayim and and particularly the buildings of Yerushalayim. Pasuk uh, bet bila Adonai lo chamal et kol haras God has swallowed, he did not pity all the habitations of Yaakov, he has destroyed in his great anger the fortresses of the daughter of Yehuda, they have reached the ground, they have been raised to the ground, he has profaned the kingship, the kings and the officers. What we have here really is a description of the destruction of the buildings of Yerushalayim. So later on, we're told in Pasuk Dalet, In the tent of the daughter of Zion, God spilled out his anger like fire. Um, and in the next Pasuk, in Pasuk K, we're told, Haya Adonai keoyev bila Yisrael bila kol arminoteha Mivzarav vayerev and God was like an enemy. He swallowed Israel. He swallowed all of her palaces. He destroyed her fortresses. And he made... Anguish and mourning great amongst the daughter of Yehuda. Right, so we have here uh, a real description of the destruction. Of course, the focal point of this destruction is, in fact, the Beit Hamikdash. Especially, I mean, we see this throughout the parak. We see it especially in Pasuk Zayin, Zanach Adonai Mizbecho, Nier Mikdasho, Hiskir Biad Oyev Chomot Arminalta. God has spurned his uh, altar, his mizbeach. He has rejected his mikdash. He has extradited into the hands of the enemy the walls of her palaces, meaning Yerushalayim's palaces, and a sound has, has been heard in the house of God like the days of the festivals, right? So the sounds of rejoicing have now morphed into the sounds of the rejoicing of the enemy. Enemies in the destruction, and this is really the uh, the the basic idea of the first half of this parak. In which it, it's a very destructive section. There are a lot of loud sounds. There are many verbs. It's a dynamic structure, section. Everywhere you turn, things are being destroyed. They're falling apart. Um, and what's interesting in this section is to note uh, several things. First of all, what is the focal point of the section? Also, who is, in fact, bringing about this destruction um and 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 what is the, uh, the what, what is the focus of all this destruction aside from the uh, spatial focal point who are the people that are being destroyed in the section these are the things I'm going to be talking about in our examination of the first half of this paragraph the first thing to note is that this section is characterized by many verbs which again gives us the sense of the uh, the scope of the destruction the breadth of the destruction we have here just a list of verbs We have Shikait, Hishlich, Yahiv, Bila, Haras, Higia, Gada, Heshiv, Achor, Yimino, Vayivar, Darach, Nitzav, Vayarog, Shafach. This is just the first four psukim. Vayachmos, Shikait, Shikach, Vayinatz, Zanach, Nier, Hiskir, Hishchit again, natakav um, vayaavel, right? Ibad uh, shibar. The sense here is that every possible word that could connote destruction is used here to convey the breadth of the, dis- the destruction, the scope of the destruction, um, the comprehensive nature of the dis- of this destruction. Um, now, what's interesting here is, in fact, the role of God. God is descri- described in this section three times as the enemy, right? Uh, already in Pasuk, we have it in Pasuk, uh, Dalid, Darach, Kashto, Ki'oyev, God poised his, his bow, like an enemy. He, um, he poised his right arm. He, he held up his right arm like an enemy. And again, in Pasuke, Haya Adonai Keoyev bila Israel. God was like an enemy who swallowed Israel. So three times God is described here as an enemy twice he describes allowing the enemy to come in. Almost giving the city over to the enemy. Once in Pasuk he Heishiv achor yimino mipnei oyev God withdrew his right hand, and this is of course the right hand that often is described, or the hand that is often described as uh, the salvation of Israel, particularly in Shirat Hayam, but throughout the Tanakh here God withdraws his salvation and allows the enemy to enter, Oyev. We have a similar uh, description in Pasuk Zion. He skir biyad Oyev, Chomot armenoteha. He gave over into the hands of the enemy. He extradited into the hands of the enemy the walls of her palaces. That actually is a more accurate description of what actually takes place. In fact, of course, it is not God who is taking the fire and and setting fire to the Beit HaMikdash or to the uh, palaces and fortresses of Yerushalayim. It's, of course, the Babylonian enemy. The correct theological perspective is that God allows the enemy to come in because, of course, Yerushalayim is the special protectorate of God. And if an enemy is able to come in, it's only because God has enabled him to do so. Um, and yet, again, there seems to be a blurring of the lines here. The sense is is that if God allowed Yerushalayim to be destroyed, it's as though he is actively doing so. It's as though he has become Yerushalayim's enemy. Another thing that we see over and over in the first half of this parak is God's anger. So we have that in Pasuk Aleph, on the day of his anger. We have it actually twice in Pasuk Aleph, how has God clouded over in his anger? We have it again in Pasuk Bet, he destroyed in his rage. We have it in Pasuk Gimel, he Cut off in his anger. We have it in Pasukdalid. Um, uh, he spilled out uh, his anger like fire. Right, Six times in this uh, first half of the chapter, we have God's anger. And um, as a result, we're told, Lo chamal, he did not take pity. Lo zachar, he did not remember. Right? These are God's feelings that are being described here. Now, uh, the, the other thing that I want to point out here is the word bila, the word to swallow, um, which appears four times in this uh, in this opening section. Bila Hashem lo chamal, God swallowed and he did not pity. In Pasuk K, bila Yisrael bila kol armenotayah, he has swallowed Israel, he has swallowed all of her palaces. There's something very um, animal-like about this description. This is animal imagery. It indicates arbitrary cruelty. It indicates the complete destruction of Jerusalem. But again, because this word appears four times, it seems to be some sort of uh, of, of image, of dominant image, of destruction in this section. Um, now the destruction, uh, go, it, it describes also the, uh, the outer city, right? It describes the inner city, the outer city. It seems to really actually start from the inside of the city. Uh, the first place where we're told is destroyed is the Neot Yaakov, the, uh, the habitations of Yaakov, although it could be that before that, we're also told the Hadom Raglav, the footstool of God, which I said previously, Rachi says is the Beit HaMikdash. Another possibility is that It's the heart of the Beit HaMikdash. It is, in fact, the Aron HaKodesh, right? So we have here what seems to be a a description. It's not exact, but it seems to be that the destruction goes from the inner parts of Yerushalayim to the Outer parts of your Which, of course, must be noted that this is the opposite direction of what actually uh, probably took place. But most enemies, when they first penetrate the city, they first penetrate the outer walls, and then as they progress, they destroy everything in their path until they get to the uh, heart of the city, which in this case seems to be the Beit Hamikdash. Of course, the fact that the parak begins with Hadom Raglav, with the inner part of the city and then describes the destruction moving outwards only shows that the focus of our anguish the heart of Yerushalayim is of course the Beit HaMikdash this description of the Beit HaMikdash um, is the dominant one throughout this description of destruction so that aside from that Pasuk that I read for you in Pasuk Zion which describes quite explicitly the Mizbeach, the Mikdash and the, the Beit Hashem we also have other descriptions, which seem to allude to the Beit Hamikdash, a description like Tiferet Yisrael, which in Yeshayahu, Parak Simechtaled, is used to refer to the Beit Hamikdash. We have, as I noted, Hadom Raglav, which in Tehilim seems to refer to the Aron. We have. Ohel Batzion, we have Sukho, we have Moado, we have Neotia we have all sorts of descriptions here which seem to be alluding to the Beit HaMikdash. so once again in Perak Bet while the description is about the destruction of all of Yerushalayim the focus is clearly on the on the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash. and this indicates of course that this is what most concerns the people when they recount the destruction and perhaps especially God's role in the destruction what is particularly painful and perhaps even inconceivable is the fact that the Beit was destroyed the other thing that I want to note in this section before we go on to the next section is the other repeated theme which is that we are focused not on the Am not on the nation in general like we were in the previous parak. in the previous parak, we talk about The Kohanim and the Bitulot and the Olalim and all of Yerushalayim. Right, we're talking about uh, all of the different segments of the population of Yerushalayim. In this section, we focus particularly on the leaders. We focus on the King. Look in Pasuk Bet Chilel Mamlacha. We focus on the officers. Visareha again in passive gimel kada bakhari bakhari af kol keren israel who is the keren israel Probably it's the king, the one who is v'yarem keren mishicho, as Chana says in her shira. We're focused once again on the kings. In pasuk vav, we're told melech So once again, we see the melech, but here also the kohen, also the priests, and of course in pasuk tet, what we're told at the end of this parak is malka, or at the end of this section, malka Goeim in tora gamvi eha so there's no longer a melech, there's no longer a king, there's no longer an officer, there's no longer, there are no longer prophets. What, what we seem to see here is that, um, the destruction here is focused, or at least the description of the destruction is focused on the leaders. Um, now, what this suggests, first of all, is that, um, the, the people are left in a state of disorientation. They're left flailing, dazed and confused with no one to lead them, no one to direct them, no one to help them to reorganize, to rehabilitate them, to alleviate their pain in any way. This destruction leaves the people uh, helpless. Uh, The other thing that I think is important to note are two other things that I think are important to note is that there seem to be two separate chapters um, that that describe the impact of the destruction. One describes the people in general, and the other focuses on the leader, which suggests that the the there are two different sets of responsibilities two different sets of expectations and therefore perhaps also two different descriptions of punishment we have different expectations from the leader their um, uh lack of leadership their lack of spiritual integrity led perhaps even more directly to the korban, And this we know from various different Prakim, various different chapters in the Nevi'im, which focus on the leaders, particularly what comes to mind is Yirmiyahu, Perak the 34th chapter of Yirmiyahu. But in general, I think that the sense is is that we need to focus our attention differently when we talk about the destruction of the people, when we talk about the destruction of the leaders. The last thing, though, that I want to say, and I think this is really the key to understanding the role of the leaders here, is that there's almost a sense that we are shifting the responsibility and the blame here from the people in general, which is what we saw in Perk and we talked about this in our last year. Chet that was the eighth verse in the first chapter, Yerushalayim has surely sinned, therefore she has become like a nida, and everyone seems to be equally culpable, Equally at um, uh, to blame for the sins and their, therefore the punishment. What we have in Parakbet is almost a an attempt to deflect the blame and to place the responsibility for the situation squarely on the shoulders of the leaders. Um, now this point is going to be important for our next part of the chapter, and I really do want to turn now uh, to the next part of the chapter starting in Pasuk Yud Aleph, because I think that this point about leaders is really going to Enhance our understanding in general of the theological approach of this cha- of the chapter. Now, as I noted, um, we transition from the loud destruction and the third person objective descri- description of this dis- destruction into the first person description in Pasuk Aleph. Aleph. I'd like to first read for you the last. Two psukim of this first section, what we're told here is, uh, well, maybe I'll start with the middle of verse 8. Vayavel chel vichoma yechdav umlalu. And the uh, rampart and the wall mourned together they languished. Okay, So we have here the external description of the destruction of Yerushalayim, the wall and the rampart. Tavuva v'aretz she'areha, the uh, gates of the city, have sunk into the ground. Ibad vishibar her locks have been destroyed and lost. Malka v'sareha v'goyim, and I read this before, her kings and her officers are among the nations. ein Torah there is no instruction. Gam nevi'eha lumatzu chazon me'ashem, also, her prophets did not find any sort of vision from God. Because okay, so what we have here in this final description of the destruction of the city is the external uh, walls, the external gate, finally the locks, and then there's no more leadership. Yeshvula arets, they sit on the ground. Yidmu the elders of Zion fall silent. They afar al Rasham, they put ashes on their head. Chagru sakim, they put on sackcloth. Horidu la'aretz rashan, bitulot Yerushalayim. The young maidens of Yerushalayim bow their heads to the ground. All fall silent. And this is the end of the description of the destruction. Now, in the aftermath of the silence, we have Yerushalayim... Uh, Picking up her head, looking around and trying to absorb the terrible sights. Look at what she says. enai, The tears have seized in my eyes, my insides churn Nishpahla Kvedi. Al shever bat ami, my uh, insides spill out onto the ground because of the brokenness of my people. Beatef olel kirya, as the young children and the sucklings languish and faint in the streets of her city. Okay, so what is the first thing that Yerushalayim says? The first thing she says is, "I have no more tears." She also says, "My insides churn." and they spill out, right? This is a metaphor, uh, perhaps for her city being emptied of its inhabitants, what represented her strength, her energy, her vital juices, her life, perhaps even her soul, right? What is described here actually as her physical inner organs spill out onto the ground, and this is a, a description of Yerushalayim's lack of strength, her lack of vitality, her lack of energy. What is it, in fact, that has caused her tears to stop flowing, and that has caused her simply to be almost rendered paralyzed with no real ability to muster up even tears, even um, uh, emotions, because she's been emptied out of all of her vital juices. It's the image of the children. The first thing that Yerushalayim sees are the innocent victims, the ones who have incurred no blame, the ones who cannot protect themselves, of course, and therefore are the most vulnerable and therefore suffer the most. And that's, of course, the children, O'lel vionek the ones who are very young and the ones who are still sucklings. Um, now, they are uh, languishing, they're lying without strength in the streets of the And this, of course, is a mirror image of Yushalayim uh, lying without strength. But here we're going to actually hear the words of the children. I'm reading in the next pasuk in Yudbet. To the mothers they say, "Aye dagan where is grain and wine as they languish like corpses on the streets of the city, imotam, as they pour out their soul in the bosom. Of their mother is an excruciating image which is presented here of children expiring in their mother's arms as they beg for something to eat. In their final words, this is the most painful image that anyone could conjure up. There are no more tears. Yerushalayim says there's no more energy, and she is she's totally paralyzed. And and. That, of course, leads us to the next pasuk, in which Yerushalayim no longer speaks. Um, Yerushalayim not only has no more tears, not only has no more inner organs, she also has no more words. And so I mentioned last time that it appears that this parak is supposed to be divided into two, in which the first half is the objective description of the third-person narrator, and the second half is the subjective description of Yerushalayim. But really, after two pasukim, Yerushalayim stops speaking. And the way in which I'm going to try to establish that this is, in fact, uh, the correct reading that it was supposed to be, that Yerushalayim was supposed to speak for the remainder of the chapter, is that, in my opinion, the the next five or six psukim from Pasuk Yud-Gimel through Pasuk Yud-Tet is the attempt of the objective narrator to to get Yerushalayim to speak once again. There is a very strenuous attempt on the part of the narrator to try to get Yerushalayim to speak. I'm going to look at that in a moment, but first I want to go back to those two psukim in which Yerushalayim looks at the languishing and the the death of these children in the bosom of their mother. I want to say two things about this image. One is that it is constructed in a chiastic structure. I discussed this a little bit in my introduction to biblical poetry, that oftentimes what we we have in Tanakh is right in the middle of an acrostic structure of a uh, of a unit which is arranged alphabetically right smack in the middle we often have an inner chiastic structure and the inner chiastic structure directs us to the very heart of the matter to the central image the central idea of the chapter this point it, we have also here in parakbet so let's see what is the central image of the chapter the word shafach the word Atef, the image of the children and the streets of the city. I'll read it for you. Nishpach la'aretz kvedi, Now we have in the next pasuk, once again, behit atfam kechalal birchovot ir. We have the fainting of the children in the streets. And again, we have the word shafach. So it's A-B-B-A, we have the spilling out of the vital juices of Yerushalayim, her vitality, her energy, as the children spill out their lives in the bosom of their mother. And what we're being told here is that the most horrific experience of the destruction of Yerushalayim, the focal point of this chapter, is the the, the meaningless, the needless death of the innocent children, the ones who really incur no blame um, in, in the midst of Yerushalayim as a result of this terrible destruction. Uh, that's the, 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 I think the focal point of the chapter, because I, I think that this chapter have, has a very particular theological perspective. And that is, as opposed to Perak Aleph, the feeling in this chapter is a feeling of tzaddik Viralo, of the innocent one who is punished. Um, While the first chapter groped its way towards a realization of sinfulness, towards a confession, towards an ability to say "Tzadiku Hashem kifihu mariti," God is righteous for I have rebelled against His words, uh, etc., etc., as we mentioned in the last parak. This parak never arrives at that point. This parak never actually gets to a point where um, where Yerushalayim is willing to admit any sort of culpability, and instead, by focusing our attention on the children, and by also deflecting our attention from the punishment of the people in the city towards the leaders, there's almost this attempt to take these two ideas and uh, merge them together and emerge with a theme of blamelessness, with a theme of, uh, I don't understand why God did this. There's a sense that the destruction leaves us with these uh, still difficult theological questions, and it's a contrast to Perak Aleph, and we'll be talking about this perhaps not today, but as we progress throughout Migilat Echa, we're going to try to emerge with a larger picture of the theological approach of Migilat Echa to the destruction. But here I just want to note that, uh, chapters one and two really leave us with a certain machloket, with a certain controversy as to what is the, uh, the actual, uh, um, approach, the actual theological approach of Yerushalayim, of Am Yisrael, in the aftermath of the korban Is there a sense of, I got what I deserved, of uh, clearly, Chet Yerushalayim al Kain. therefore this has happened, or is there this sense, this abiding sense of Sadik Virallo? Um, now, the, the, I'm going to leave that point aside as I uh, finish up our attempt to try to outline this chapter, but there is one more thing that I wanted to say about those two psukim, and that is what we have here is the first sense that the mothers are not giving food to their children. Uh, again, it's not clear in Yud Bet exactly what is the position of the mothers. The children are dying in the mother's arms as they ask for food, and it's not clear whether the mothers don't give it to them because they don't have the food, or if they're withholding food from the children. This is going to become clearer as we get to the end of the chapter, which really leaves us with perhaps the most horrific image imaginable, and that is of the mothers actually eating the children. So I would uh, suggest that here what we're beginning to get a sense of is the the fact that the famine has not just left the children hungry, uh, but it has also uh, left the mothers morally culpable for their children's hunger. We'll talk about that perhaps a little bit at the end of the chapter. Um, now, what ha- happens in psukim, you'd gimel through your tet, and I apologize because we're not going to have time to read these psukim or to properly um, analyze These psukim is an attempt, as I noted, to try to get Yerushalayim to speak again. In fact, um Pasuk Yud Gimel is the narrator's attempt uh, to direct his statement at Yerushalayim. And he speaks directly to Yerushalayim in second person. What can I testify to you? What can I compare you to, O daughter of Jerusalem? What can I compare you to so that I can comfort you? Ki gadol kayam shivreich. For as great as the sea is your brokenness, who can cure you? We spoke about the simile in our introduction to biblical poetry. Um, But here, I just want to 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 note that the very first pasuk after Yerushalayim ceases to speak is in a direct attempt to try to offer some measure of comfort to Yerushalayim. Of course, there are all these rhetorical questions which indicate that there is no real comfort for Yerushalayim. In fact, here I might note that the word nechama appears in Megillat Echa five times, every time, either in a rhetorical sense or in the negative. Ein menachemli, Ain she has no comforter. And of course, uh, here, ma ma'ashvelach v'anachamech, what can I compare you to so that I can comfort you? Now, what follows is a certain lack of coherent theme, anything, any attempt to try to get Yerushalayim to speak. There's again a shifting of blame from Yerushalayim. It's not your fault. It's the false of the false prophets. Once again, shifting blame to the leaders. Um, what is then described are the outside reaction to Yerushalayim's distress destruction, all in an attempt to try to get Yerushalayim to speak. All of these attempts seem to fail because Yerushalayim does not continue with her her subjective narration of the destruction until um, the objective narrator uses a very uh, specific tactic, a very specific strategy to try to get Yerushalayim to speak. And that starts in Pasuk Yudchet. In Pasuk Yudchet, the narrator turns directly to Yerushalayim and says, Let your eyes flow like a stream, night and day. In other words, start crying again. Yerushalayim had said, My eyes have seized, my tears have stopped up in my eyes. And here, the objective narrator turns directly to Yerushalayim and says, Let your eyes flow. Don't let them stop flowing altidom bat enech do not let your eyes cease kumi roni valaila lirosh ashmurot get up cry out in the night at the top of the night watch shifchi chamaim libech pour out your heart like water noachpne hashem in front of god se'eilav lift out your hands to him. And all this, she hasn't actually given a reason why, but now the objective narrator explains what it is that should get your Yerushalayim to speak again. Al nefesh ha'atufim b'ra'av Because of the lives of the young children who are languishing from hunger on every street corner. So once again, we have the image of the child who is languishing on every street corner because of hunger, about to die, or or perhaps dying as the narrator speaks. And here the narrator actually does something very interesting. The narrator says, the image of the children has caused you to stop speaking, but that is the wrong tactic that will get you nowhere. It is the image of the children that should get you to speak again. And in fact, here the objective narrator is successful. And so Yushalan begins to speak again in Pasukav. And here I hope that I've uh, succeeded in convincing you that really the second half of the chapter was supposed to be Yerushalayim speaking the entire time. Yerushalayim cannot continue speaking until the narrator tells Yerushalayim you must speak. Otherwise, there's no hope for these children. And so at this point, Yerushalayim re-enters the uh, the the chapter once again, once again to offer a subjective description of the destruction. But look at her tone. She turns here directly to God and she says, Re'eh Hashem v'habita. Look at those words. We had those words also in Pasuk Aleph, and there I note, in Parak Aleph, sorry, and there I noted that the idea was Hester panim, that God was hiding his face from them and that this minimalistic request is the only way to try to re-establish connection with God so as to uh, effect at the beginning of rehabilitation and communication with God once again. But it's a very minimalist request. Re'ashem <laughs> v'abita, look God and see. olalta olaltako. To whom have you done this? You remember that word olalta from Perak Aleph, from the part of Perak Aleph when Yerushalayim was grappling with a sense of tzaddik viralo. Olalta is a very difficult word. It's a very conscious, deliberate um, uh, doing to them, in this case, destruction. Lemi Olaltako, to whom have you done this, says Yerushalayim to God, Im Tochalna Nashim if women eat their own fruits, the children that they have cared for, Im Adonai, kohen Vinavi, if in the sanctuary of God the priest and the prophet shall die. Here Yerushalayim turns to God in anger and says, everything is turned topsy-turvy. Mothers eat their children. The holy sanctuary witnesses the vulgar murder of its keepers. The inconceivable has happened in every plane. There's a sense of lack of understanding. There's a sense of theological um, perplexity. There's a, a sense of Tzadik Viralo. Aratz <laughs> chutzot, na'ar v'zakein. The people who are lying in the streets are young and old. Old Bitulotai Vahai Naflu Viharev, Haragta Biyom Apecha, Tavachta, Lo Chamalta, you have killed on the day of your anger. Look at the next word Tavakta, you have slaughtered, you did not pity. Okay, This is pretty much the end of the chapter, which ends with Yom Af Hashem, the day of God's anger. In other words, there's no attempt to mitigate the sense of of lack of fairness. This chapter is an angry chapter. It's a chapter where Yerushalayim does not become reconciled to the destruction. The theological approach of this chapter is the approach of Tzadik Viralo, the image of the children, the blaming of the leaders, the anger at God, the description of, the description of what is inconceivable here, that is in fact the theological approach of this chapter. Now I'll end this class simply by indicating one other structural feature of this chapter, one that we alluded to also in our class on uh, biblical poetry. Um, and here I want to uh, talk a little bit about the chiastic structure that is in this particular chapter which was identified once again by um, Dr. Gavriel Cohen um, of Barilan University. He uh, identifies here at the beginning of the chapter at the first pasok and the last pasok has, has the phrase is biyom In the first pasuk, in the last pasuk, b'yom af Hashem. In the second pasuk, we're told, lo chamal, God did not pity. And in pasuk of Aleph, Yerushalayim turns to God and says, lo, um, you did not pity. In the third pasuk, we have a description of the ash, the fire that is achlas uh, uh, saviv, that is eating everything around it. And that's a description, of course, of the destruction, the physical dest- dest- destruction of Yerushalayim. Whereas in the third to last pasuk, what is described is the women eating their children. And the word tochalna appears there. And that matches to the third pasuk in the parak. Um, now, the the last part of this kaestik structure is perhaps the most interesting part. In this last pasuk, uh, in this last part, in Pasuk Dalid we're told, Shafach ka'esh hamato, he spilled out his anger like fire. And in the fourth to last pasuk, this is where Yerushalayim turns to God and says, uh I'm sorry, the narrator turns to Yerushalayim and says, "Shivchi Chamaim Libech." Pour out your heart like water, and in fact, this last parallel is particularly interesting because when the narrator turns to Yerushalayim and asks her, or or. Um, requests of her to pour out her prayers like water. What she's suggesting here, what the narrator is suggesting here, is that this water can put out the fire of God's destruction that is described in the first part of the chapter. And so here I want to see the first little teeny movement towards a hopeful state again it's just a baby step and there's certainly nothing particularly hopeful about parakbet but what i do want to see in Migilat echa as a whole is an incremental movement towards parakeh which is a parak in which we can finally begin to see the light at the end of the tunnel it's really very small steps we have a, a real sense that uh, Migilat echa is shrouded in darkness it's a, a not there's not a tremendous amount of hope or even comfort in Miglat Echa, but there is, I believe, a movement forward. And the movement forward here may be indicated by this chiastic structure, in which in this fourth part of the chiastic structure, we see the ability to use prayer to put out the fire of destruction that we have in the first part of the chapter. And so this is what uh, uh, perhaps a an outline of Perak Bet, what we've done today. We divided the parak into two parts. We saw the loud, crashing, fierce destruction in the first part of the parak, which particularly focuses on the Beit HaMikdash and, of course, the leaders. Here also we saw the role of God and particularly the portrayal of God as an enemy in the second half of the parak, where Yerushalayim begins to speak. We see that the focal point is the children. That causes Yerushalayim to become paralyzed, to stop crying and And also to stop speaking, Jerusalem only comes once again into the picture. She begins speaking once again after the narrator tells her that that's the only way actually to help the children. But this chapter does not end with any real uh, sense of resolution, certainly not theologically. The chapter ends with a real accusation towards God. Look, God, and see to whom you have done this. You have slaughtered and you have not pitied. And that's the theological approach of Parakbek. In our next class, Be'ezrat Hashem, we will examine the central parak of Megillat Eicha, parak Gimel, which also, I believe, contains the central idea and the central themes of Megillat